Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Eric LeMay. I'm a host on New Books in Education, a channel of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Janelle Adsit about her book, Toward an Inclusive Creative Writing. In it, Adsit takes a hard look at the way American colleges and universities teach creative writing. What do students who enter our creative writing classrooms encounter as these young men and women hope to discover who they are and can be as writers? Does the teaching they receive help or hinder them? As Adsit's title suggests, one of the problems she's found with writing instruction in our institutions is that it's too exclusive, too centered on limited and limiting ideas of what counts as good writing and, by extension, who can be good writers. Too often, in writing classrooms across the country, students encounter models that are predominantly male and predominantly white. How, Adsit asks, can we foster the writing of students who don't identify with these models? How can we guide our students to write from and give voice to their own diversity? At stake in these questions is not merely the experience of students in the classroom, but, in the long run, the future of American literature. For in these classrooms are our authors to be, those writers who will go on to write the books we'll read in the coming decades. Adsit hopes to lead us forward into a brighter literary future, one in which our literature is as rich and diverse as the Americans who read it. Janelle Adsit, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to talk about your new book, Towards an Inclusive Creative Writing. And I wonder if, by way of introducing us to this book, Could you tell us what happens in your first creative writing class? Because one of the admirable things about the book is that it's it's not only interested in theorizing what it might mean to teach creative writing more democratically, more justly, more inclusively, but it's also really interested in just what's happening in the classroom with our students as we try to encourage them and foster them as writers. And so there it is. There's that first day your students walk in. What happens? That's a a lovely question. And, um, you know, with the semester starting very soon um, here at Humboldt State, it's on my mind. Every every semester I do something a little bit different. But um, my goal is really to start to create community from day one and start to open up a space where we all feel comfortable interrogating our own um, potential blind spots, and having real conversations that are often uncomfortable or vulnerable. Um, so how I go about doing that, I, I have a few um, exercises that I will sometimes pull out depending on how, how things feel in the classroom space. But um, I write a little bit about the, the step in exercise um, in chapter four. I relay that, that, that exercise where um, I'll say some 
sentences that I think might be true of the people in the room. And I'll ask them to step into a circle so that they can see that um, they have a shared experience. <clears throat> so that might be, um, you know, I'm a student at, at Humboldt State where I teach, or um, I have been writing my entire life, or I'm nervous today. I'm nervous on this first day of class. So it starts to create a sense that <clears throat> we can share what's true about ourselves and we're bringing our full selves to the space. Um, I've also started to make sure that students have the opportunity to um, <clears throat> share a little bit about themselves in written form. So I have them write third-person bios about themselves. And this is a way of sharing gender pronouns and making sure that we're um, naming people the way they want to be named. But it's also a way of providing space for students to, um, you know, tell us what they would like us to know about them. So I create a, a forum where we um, post our bios together. So th those are some of the exercises I use. Um, <clears throat> but what I would so, say, so oh, go ahead. Please, please go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear what you would say. <laughs> what I would say to them um, on the first day is, um, that I'm here to learn with them. So I really try to um, create a, a sense that I um, am a facilitator more than I am a judge of their writing or an, an um, all-knowing being at the front of the room. So that, that decentering of me as a teacher also has to do with a decentering of um, a creative writing tradition that I might represent um, in my my being, in my PhD, um, and what have you. So I'm thoughtful about those choices and how they communicate to the students what my pedagogy is and what belongs in the creative writing classroom. So I'm wondering if your students are surprised. So they're moving their bodies, they're writing about themselves, they're they're stepping in and out of circles. Um, you know, there's this this sort of view that I imagine one or two of them at least might have that, you know, I'm going in and I'm about to meet my professor who's going to be my instructor for the next semester. And in, in my own experience, my students have never been too impressed by the fact that I did a PhD in Renaissance studies focusing on Milton. That never really won them over at parties. But the fact that I had written books, right? This is an author who's actually written books. This is, I'm moving into this space with them. And, and there you are suddenly moving into the circle and asking them to write about themselves rather than telling them what it is to be a writer. Are any of them surprised? Oh, I think so. Um, because of the cultural messages that, that surround authorship and who gets to claim that identity of, of author, of, of the person with authority. Um, so I tried to make that a, a topic of conversation explicitly in the first week. What ideas do we have surrounding this idea of author? Um, and who gets to claim that, that identity? So I think um, really exposing the surprise for um, the cultural messages that, it, that 
um, it contains is a, an important part of departure in doing the kind of cultural work that I want the creative writing classroom to do. Um, what are the messages about writing that we have inherited from the world around us? And then how are those messages serving us or not serving us as we come to this craft um, in, in each of our beings, our individual um, unique constellation of identities? So yes, I, I think the students are surprised, but happily so. Um, I'll, I'll share one other small anecdote. Um, I, I recently did an exercise with students who um, I, I asked them to share with me something that they want from the class in the next week. And I, it was a writing exercise. So they they um, moved about the classroom and, and wrote um, what they the response to the question um, on different sheets of paper. And, and many students wrote things like, I'm looking for community. I'm looking for intimacy. I'm looking for um, a sense of connection with my peers, um, which surprised me because, you know, I, I expected them to, to say I, I would like, um, you know, less homework or more time to, to work. But they many of the responses had to do with that sense of, bringing them full, their full selves to the class and connecting with each other. So I keep the, their responses near my desk to remind me that this is something that they want, um, even if they may feel awkward or uncomfortable with the idea of it, at least initially. Well, I think that, that the idea that here you are on the first day wanting to create community is one of those things that that tests the unspoken assumptions that guide at least the way we think about the writer and often the way we we teach them. So in your book, you bring up the idea of the writer as this this lonely person, right? You talk about Shelley's solitary nightingales singing out the song <laughs> of poetry, um, and so we, you know, you're already kind of wonderfully using the pronoun we to talk about the classroom. Um, we often don't think of writers as a we. We often don't think of writers as people working in community. We often think of them as these isolated individuals who publish books or work at desks or in corner coffee shops with their headphones on or, you know, win MacArthur's or something like that. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about this shift from the solitary writer to the communal writer, which I think is, is one of the many movements you're trying to, to generate in your book as you move us forward. Absolutely. You know, I think that solitary writer comes from a particular tradition, a culturally specific tradition, largely a white tradition. Um, and so the um, destabilizing that idea of the solitary writer has political import, I would argue. So um, I've been fortunate in my life to be exposed to traditions of, of um, community storytelling, community publishing, um, spoken word uh, events that really are a, a communal endeavor. There may be one or two performers at the front of the room, but they are vibing with the audience and, and there's a kind of collective experience coming about. Um, <clears throat> I'm very interested in oral storytelling and the history of, of storytelling as the keeper of, of cultural knowledge. Um, <clears throat> so 
destabilizing the idea of the solitary writer is we have tools to do that. It just really matters what gets centered in the classroom and which versions of the author, which constructs of the author or the writer are mobilized in the classroom. And I, I think there's a space for the solitary um, idea, the writer in the garret, you know, the, those traditions. Certainly our students can be exposed to those ideas as well, though they are likely already exposed to those ideas from Hollywood films that depict writers um, and what have you. But it's important that that's not the only story we tell about what an author is or who an author is. I wonder if by way of contrast, you could recount for us another first day of class that you bring up in the book, which is one that you yourself took as an undergrad. And and what were the values that were foregrounded there and how did you encounter them? Oh, yes. Um, I often say that I began developing toward an inclusive creative writing when I first walked into a creative writing classroom as an undergraduate student. Um, even as an undergraduate, the discipline of creative writing seemed limited to me. And this is not at all a judgment of my teachers. I, I think I start the book with um, just great acknowledgement of the wonderful teachers I've had. Um, it, I'm simply reflecting on the discipline we've all inherited. Um, you know, as a student um, in undergrad, I, I came to see how we are all enveloped in this discipline of, of academic creative writing that has a history and has reproduced itself in the classroom. <clears throat> so as a student, it was immediately clear that creative writing was meant to teach us a certain kind of taste. Um, I, I think of a passage from Cheryl Strayed's book, um, Wild, where she recounts how her mother's favorite author was James Missioner. Um, but when Cheryl Strayed became a student in creative writing, her professors told her that Missioner was an entertainer for the masses and therefore not worthwhile for study. Um, and in Wild, Strayed recounts um, a, a Christmas scene where her mother received Missioner's book, Texas, as a gift only to hear her daughter declare that's not a real book. Um, and I, I share this anecdote from Strayed's book because I think it demonstrates that creative writing teaches a certain kind of taste. And the story is not about Missioner per se. You know, the, the James A. Missioner Center for Writers at the University of Texas is well-respected and thriving. Um, it's about this taste regime that Cheryl Strayed's story um, reveals. <clears throat> And the discipline of creative writing teaches its students what books to like and not like. Um, there's a politics to this, too. Um, what counts as good literature is a, a political question. And I think it's important that, that it becomes clear to students that that's the case. So good literature, good for whom and for what? Whose books count as real literature? Who gets to make this designation? who's excluded from it. And this is where we get to the question of inclusion in creative writing. Um, as an undergraduate student, it seemed to me that what was ignored or sometimes even overtly disparaged in creative writing correlated with class, with gender, with race. So we know that there are patterns to what gets included and excluded in creative writing. 
um, writers of certain subject positions, white writers, middle and upper class writers, male writers, um, get included more often than writers of color, women, transgender writers. Um, and we've seen this exposed in, in organizations or by organizations like um, VITA, who have called the publishing sector to account for these unfortunate patterns. Um, but we also need to account for them in the creative writing classroom. And that's what the book is focused on. So when you want to encourage your students to, to validate what they already love as a, as a place to build from, how does that happen? Um, and, and I guess I could, I could paint a portrait here to try to elaborate on this question. So, so one of the things that I found in my own creative writing classrooms is this very moment um, that you talk about students are worried that the things that they love to read, that one, the things that inspire them to want to be writers to begin with are things that are going to be devalued and you know, they can't speak about them. So there's often this throat clearing of like, I know I shouldn't be talking about Stephen King. Um, I know I shouldn't be talking about songs, right? And I'll say, well, why not? You know, why can't we talk about those? But you can already see that they've internalized that there's this taste regime or, or set of works that should be the ones that are upheld, the ones that are tradition, whatever. So, so how do you begin carving this this room for inclusion, this room for different voices and even validating the voices that your students are trying to develop? Yeah, it's an ongoing question in, in my own pedagogy. Um, <clears throat> and I think it, I've largely come to approach the, the question explicitly in the classroom. So I find that the more I can invite students into my pedagogy, into the decision-making that happens in every class session, every lesson plan, every syllabus, um, the more we're freed up to um, rethink the, the choices that are before us in the classroom. So um, <clears throat> I'll have students examine the syllabus that they're given on the first day of class and to list all that they know that's not included. Um, I'll have them do exercises where um, they'll remake the syllabus or revise the syllabus through um, a kind of emergent strategy technique that I borrow from Adrienne Marie Brown's book of that title. Um, so it, really, the, the answer um, for me has been to open the question up in the classroom explicitly um, and to make and to foreground the idea that creative writers are cultural producers. And so the cultural ideas and the cultural artifacts and the cultural messages that all of us come with are present in the creative writing classroom. And I have this as a kind of running theme through, throughout the semester so that we're aware of the cultural contingency of everything that comes before us in, in the classroom. So every story we read, um, both student written and um, published by another author. So I, I guess my short answer is to um, make that part of what we teach in creative writing, to teach the, the question of cultural tradition alongside the, the process of writing and the techniques that we have for getting writing done. 
So could you tell us a little bit about how that shakes out um, when you're sitting down working with a student's poem in the classroom or working on a story and trying to figure out how to get a reader to keep moving through the story with excitement and pleasure and interest? Um, what I guess I, I'm thinking is I don't want readers or listeners to come away thinking, well, what, what Dr. Adsit does, what Janelle does, right, is theorizes about writing throughout the entire semester. Um, because I know your students are still interested in creating these poems, these stories, these essays. So what's, how do these questions filter into moments where you're, say, workshopping yeah. or generating material? Absolutely. And, you know, I think there, there is a tension there of, of um, keeping the about what we do present along with the actual doing what we do um, and, and making sure that we don't, that we keep those in balance um, rather than prioritizing one over the other. Um, I often draw this, this kind of, um, diagram of a recursive relationship between the about what we do and the doing of what we do. So the meta moment comes in direct relation to the actual doing of the thing, the immersion in the process of writing. So I try to um, kind of imagine almost like a a dance step with it where one, two, one, two, you know, we have the meta um, reflection and then we go back into diving into the the actual production of writing and then we reflect on what we've produced and then we go back into the immersive work of revision um <clears throat> so that kind of provides a framework for thinking about um the the day-to-day -day work of the creative writing classroom and what i would say is that the um by equipping students with a language for, for discussing things like, um, you know, stereotypes or the pigeonholing of the writer um, or, or um, you know, the contingency of literary value, equipping students to have the ability to talk about those things can, is just like any other literary um, craft principle that we might equip them with. It's a transferable idea that helps to shape the work that we do in writing. So it, I really see the work of creative writing as developing a lens for <clears throat> reading, a lens for getting writing done that um, doesn't come automatically to us. It, it's, it's a deliberate, ongoing work to come to um expand our imaginations to come to see how our imaginations are influenced by the stories we've seen um, and the, the stories we know, to come to see how our imaginations might reinforce a single story, as Chimamanda Adichie puts it in her TED Talk. Um, and then to, but to also get those imaginations onto the page um, <clears throat> and, and to have the... Um, expansive ability to um, see ourselves and see our own ways of knowing um, in the stories and poems that we write. Well, I think one of the questions I would, I'm very curious about is, is 
what kind of work gets produced? Are you are you happy with the result of this approach, this recursive dance between the about and the doing in terms of the work that your students produce? And, and how do they themselves feel about it? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm um, continually impressed by the work that that students are able to do. And I find that the, um, the reading that we do, that is um, meta in nature, that is reflecting about, reflecting on writing, that is in the about side of that dance, um, does inform their work, but not in a way, that, you know, we might um, worry as teachers that it would be paralyzing or stymieing um, and I, I think that worry largely comes from the fact that it's not what we've done. Um, you know, we, we typically, <clears throat> you know, if I think about a traditional creative writing class, it's loaded up with craft principles, which are, are principles that are meta in nature. You know, what a plot looks like or how pacing works or um, the different types of point of view options that that um, someone has and that, that's just in fiction um, <clears throat> or, or creative nonfiction. We're teaching principles all the time in creative writing, but when we add a set of principles that are different from that traditional craft canon, we might start to worry, oh, am I, am I doing too much and pulling them away from their work? But I see these principles as, as being always present in making just as point of view and, and um, structure and pacing are also always present in making. And um, the concerns that we might have about teaching them, the, these, these um, issues of identity or positionality, power, privilege, the myth of meritocracy, um, the concerns we might have about teaching those, those things um, <clears throat> We, it's important to interrogate where those concerns come from and then continually be in dialogue with, with our students about um, how they're feeling about the balance of the meta and the doing, um, <clears throat> if that makes some sense. So what I would say is that creative writing has always had principles, transferable principles that it has taught, and we've called it craft um, by and large. Um, and what, what I've tried to do with the book is to expose those concepts and then question whether or not um, the, the concepts have served us. So, for example, one concept might be, um, a traditional concept might be um, the idea that, that writers learn craft. And a craft is a timeless and universal set of formal considerations for shaping a work of literature. Well, in the book, I... I I try to um, identify a different principle that rather than upholding a, a universal idea of craft, let's instead foreground the radical contingency of literary values and the implor- importance of pluralizing the traditions and practices that we know well. I, I absolutely love that. And I'm trying to, to figure out a formulation that, that does justice to how insightful what you've just said is um, something to the effect of if you had a traditional fiction writer teaching a course and they suddenly heard that someone wasn't teaching plot 
And <laughs> probably a he would say, well, that's insane. You couldn't teach plot. You have to teach plot. How can students learn how to write without teaching plot? And your argument is just in the way you wouldn't not teach plot, we shouldn't not teach about privilege. We shouldn't not teach about the myth of meritocracy, that these are as essential to the ways that we formulate and create our works of art as plot or lineation or structure. Um, but we just haven't recognized that probably because of issues of bias. Does that exactly. seem right? Exactly. Um, and, you know, I still teach plot, but I teach plot in a very comparative way. So um, I, I use Leslie Marmon Silko's idea of community storytelling as a kind of web um, and rather than a linear plot arc, it's web making that is how we structure story. Um, so it, that's just one example of how the craft principles that we're already deploying can be just um, altered slightly if, if, using a comparative approach. So we show that it's that none of them are universal. Instead, they they are just one um, way of looking at one set of of um, textual forms, and then let's look at the other ways of understanding those textual forms too. And then students are all the more able to try out um, different ways. So I I do an exercise where um, students try to craft a <clears throat> short short story. Um, with a linear plot arc using four sentences, um, one sentence for each, for a, a specific dot or point on the, the um, Aristotelian arc. And then I have them rewrite that story um, as a web you, after reading Leslie Marmon Silko's work. <clears throat> so they're, they're able to become more versatile and they're also able to see how a way of knowing is embedded in the narratology, um, in the, the theory of narrative that they find represented in Aristotle, Aristotle's poetics, um, in Freytag, in, in Silco. So, so tell us a little bit about the challenge for you then, given that, that you're bringing forward these different traditions some of which you yourself didn't grow up in. Um, mm -hmm. There is this idea, right, that, that you know, it, the academic idea of specialization and, you know, expertise and things like that, that, that there are certain forms of, of knowledge to which you have to have, you know, experience and practice and all sorts of things. So how do you, you know, let's take your example, right? Here's the Aristotelian Freytag model of a plot. And then here's Silko's notion of the web, right? Which she is mastered. Um, how do you begin to help students move forward when there is such a range and diversity of aesthetic options and possibilities and subject positions that they might occupy? Um, where do you see your position as a teacher? Because it would seem to suggest that the instructor in that classroom would have to give up the idea that he or she would always be in the position of the one who knows. Absolutely. And, you know, teaching is an exercise in cultural humility. And I, <laughs> I bring that to the fore from day one, that something I want to cultivate in all of us and that I work to cultivate in myself 
is that sense of cultural humility. So I, I certainly could not teach them an all-encompassing comparative approach that represents the, the vast range and, and you know, infinite range of approaches to literary art making. Let's throw out that idea that I should be able to do that. I'm not the, the all-knowing one, but I can embody a sense of humility and I can help to um, encourage them forward in their own curiosity. So I, one of the reasons I love creative writing is because I think it, it is a, a special space where we can push ourselves to um, see the world beyond how we, we have seen it. So in other words, um, it can be the space where we are seeking out uh, new ways of understanding or, or new to us. Um, and this is an ongoing practice to read beyond that which we are familiar with, to seek out which that which challenges our understanding. Um, but if we can make the creative writing classroom a space that does um, inhabit different ways of knowing or enables us to inhabit different ways of knowing through story and verse and language languages art. Um, I, I think it's all the more powerful for doing that. So to me, that's an explicit um, goal. It's not really a learning outcome because there, there's no, you know, demonstrated mastery of, of, um, of that kind of that level of curiosity and humility um, but it is an ongoing practice that I try to center in the creative writing classroom. Have you found that it's changed the way that you create your own poetry? Because you are also a poet. Um, I should let readers know that you are not simply teaching creative writing, um, but practicing it yourself and writing powerful and moving lyric poetry. Um, have you found that it's changed the way that your own aesthetic has developed? Absolutely. It, it has made me um, uh, approach my work with a different lens. Um, I've asked questions of myself that I wasn't necessarily taught to um, ask of myself as a student in creative writing. You know, what does it mean that I'm the one writing this um, in my body as a white person, as a woman, um, you know, in my positionality? And, and what is it that I want my poetry to contribute to this um, vast, diverse literary landscape? Um, and those are questions that I, I've come to see in a, a new way as I've learned from my students, learned from their work. Um, it, one of the beautiful benefits of, of a, a creative writing classroom that, that puts cultural humility at the center is I've become exposed to work that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to find on my own, including my students' work. You know, the, the cookie cutter workshop experience or the cookie cutter workshop story or poem, um, I think is, is sometimes a result of a kind of cultural imperialism in the classroom, not to overstate it, but, um, you know, when a classroom becomes a more culturally plural space, the workshop pieces that are brought forward are much more ranging and they represent, um, you know, students' cultural traditions. Now, I'm fortunate to work at a very diverse campus. Um, we're a Hispanic-serving institution. Um, <clears throat> and so my students 
have um, access to cultural traditions that I didn't grow up with and, and haven't had access to. So I learned so much from them. Um, and, and one of the reasons I love teaching where I teach is because of that. <clears throat> but all of that has changed my work as well. Um, and I, I try to make a point that I write alongside my students so that there's a sense that we are a community of writers um, and I am a facilitator in this space, but also one of the writers in the space. So to, to take a step back and talk about this book, right, Toward an Inclusive Creative Writing, one part of the book is a kind of diagnostic of the state of creative writing as it's being taught in the academy. And really, in a sense, what are some of the biases that have been at its heart? Um, what are some of the ways that it's not serving students, particularly students of color, um, students who are coming from a different sexual or gender orientation? And, and, and how has it not been inclusive, but exclusive? But it's not simply... Um, a state of it. it, it's towards something better, towards something new. And your subtitle points toward that, Threshold Concepts to Guide the Literary Curriculum. So could you tell us a little bit about the, the model you're offering for teaching creative writing in the academy and, and how these threshold concepts might give us a better way forward? Yeah, so I see the book as kind of um, my my um, opportunity to to say to the field, hey, this is what I'm doing at this point. These are my provisional conclusions as they're enacted in, in my classroom. What do you think? So um, I really see it as an act of exposing my own um, limited pedagogy for what, for what it is. But um, the threshold concepts are there um, because they're guideposts for my own work, um, you know, I, I think about how challenging it is to remake the discipline, to change the ideas that we've inherited in creative writing. Um, when we're in the thick of a knowledge system, which I, I argue that the discipline of creative writing is, um, it may feel as though we are kind of of and in the clay, um, as it were, um, we are in and of our discipline and, and um, remolding that which we are in and of is a challenging thing. So by naming the concepts and the, the understandings that I see as part of the discipline of creative writing and then trying to change those, I see that kind of as putting my hands around that which I have been in and of and trying to remold it. Um, so that's that's why I went to the idea of a threshold concept, those complex or naughty ideas that that we grapple with in our disciplines um, as we we gain expertise. Um, <clears throat> the threshold concept gave me a way of kind of putting my hands on the clay that has been so part of me as I, I've gone through these <laughs> these degrees in in, in creative writing. Um, and in my own be, education, yeah. Would you be willing to give us an example of of one of the threshold concepts and and where you think it was and and how you're trying to remold it? Sure. Um, so, you know, the, this um, I think of a uh, a quote from Robert Demaria's College Handbook of Creative Writing, um, where he says something like. Um, 
writers do not uh, do the work of, of special interest readers who have politicized the, the study of literature and are preoccupied with such things as race, ethnicity, and gender. Um, instead, writers are, are doing something else that isn't political. Um, so that would be an example of, of an old threshold concept of like good literature is not, not political in nature. And the 12 threshold concepts that, that I propose in the book are explicitly trying to show the politics of a statement like that Demaria quote. Um, <clears throat> in, in statements like Demaria's, there's a colorblind racism that, that keeps whiteness centered um, in disavowing the, the question of race. Um, work that shows up as raced or gendered is marked as not belonging to creative writing because writers do not do the work of, of those who have politicized the, the study of literature in Demaria's, um, Demaria's words. Um, I hope I'm representing the book um, accurately just from memory here, but um, <clears throat> it, that would be one example of kind of exposing something that um, I see as kind of insidious in, in creative writing, this idea of, of the apolitical text um, and, and instead helping to offer tools that will show the politics of each text and will um, destabilize this idea that um, there could possibly be a neutral um, a, a text that, that is universal and, and apart from um, identity categories or, or culture. So that students have this awareness that whenever they're writing, they're always speaking to and engaging with the polis, right? That there's no non-political writing and the, the non-political writing of the past was always serving a certain political demographic to begin with. Exactly, exactly. And this ban on the political text um, is a kind of silencing and marginalization of, of those who um, are marked in a text like Demaria's um, with that, that statement are marked as othered, as other through gender, through race, through ethnicity, um, nation, uh, sexuality, and, and otherwise. And I think I just want to to further and underline what you're saying by imagining how much amazing work gets lost if you take that old paradigm as true. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, I, my sense is that creative writing has a canon of its own. And um, I haven't done the, the research on this, but I would hypothesize that if we were to look at syllabi, that the same texts are often assigned. And I wonder what those texts have um, it, within them in terms of ideology that is being reinforced in the creative writing classroom. And, and how can we go about um, you know, destabilizing that canon, which is a kind of subset or, or <laughs> overlapping um, canon with the one that we often talk about in literary studies, literary criticism, um, you know, creative writing has a craft canon of its own, I would argue. It would be interesting to see that, to see this, the same people who are assembling data at Vita put together some sort of visualization of, of what's actually happening in the classrooms in terms of what gets taught. 
I agree. I, I applaud the work that Vita has done in the publishing industry. And, and I, I hope very much that we can take up that work um, and continue that work. You know, the, the conversation that um, toward inclusive creative writing um, is a part of is a robust conversation. And, and um, you know, my sense is that that, that data is around the corner um, for us because there are so many people who are engaged in this work of, of changing the creative writing classroom. And, and I would want to stress that, you know, what's at stake is, is not merely which texts get bought by institutions, um, but the, the voices of the next generation of American um, and international writers that are in our classrooms and, you know, what work, what voices we're going to foster, what voices we're going to stifle or not even allow to be recognized as voices. Um, so what's at stake is the future of our literature. Absolutely. Well put. Um, well, one of the things that's that's so acute about your book is that it's it's trying to find blindnesses that we as a discipline um, have experienced and to to bring those to light. And you are also um, sort of very straightforward and candorous as a writer that no doubt I have my own as I move forward in writing this book. So it, it made me as an interviewer want to think, want to ask you at least, so so what question should I probably have asked that I probably didn't, right? Um, what's the question that I should be asking that I might have overlooked or my own biases might have, you know, prevented me from asking that you think is important for listeners um, to hear about? Oh, that's a, a great question. Um, I, I don't know um, what exactly uh, I... I would suggest to ask, but I would say that um, taking up that question of blind spots or blank spots, as as um, Gloria Ansel Dua has taught us to to call them, um, it, I try to um, I see teaching as really about fostering a lens that that goes looking for the way power operates in the classroom, and and this of course extends beyond the classroom work. And you know, it's developing a lens for my day to day life, my interactions with students and 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 non students alike. Um, but developing that lens helps me to think about um, such a broad range of things. So, for example, um, how a particular writing prompt or reading might affect students differently. So the writing prompt that asks students to write from a character's perspective of who is a cop um, might be triggering to students in the room who have experienced police brutality, for example. Um, it, developing a lens prompts me to grapple with um, my positionality as a white teacher. Um, if I assign students to write about a, a personal experience um, or, or a trauma, what does it mean that I'm the person reading this, this story. Um, how can I prevent a demand that a story serve as a kind of informant for me as a white reader? Um, how can I encourage students to write pieces that may resist my understanding? Um, the lens checks my reading lists, um, who's being represented in the syllabus, who's left out. How can I teach a broad range of traditions in a culturally sustaining way? Um, so, you know, all of this... Um, is is really about coming to um, you know do the internal work that is needed um, for for me to uncover my own privilege and also um, uncover the ways that that um, I've been informed not just by 
a, a white dominant discipline of creative writing, but also by the world. Um, and it's daily work. It, it's very much a, a mindful, ref, self-reflexive practice um, that I'm, I'm trying to seek out for myself. So you, as you engage in that practice as, as both a teacher of writing and a writer yourself, what projects are you currently taking up? Um, what shape do those take? Oh, yes. Um, so my most recent work has focused on building tools for the creative writing classroom. So I've been working on um, student-friendly books that enable the conversations that um, I talk about in the, the Toward an Inclusive Creative Writing book. So um, one collection of essays titled um, Critical Creative Writing just came out last month with essays by writers like Conchatina Cruz, Gloria Anseldua, Leslie Marmon Silko, who I've mentioned, um, on issues such as identity, privilege, appropriation, the politics of evaluation. So I see this as, this essay anthology as a kind of um, textbook that could come alongside the, the craft texts that are often assigned in, in creative writing. Um, it just provides a, a shared um Rep set of reference points that can support the, the conversation in the classroom um, and really give language for um, discussing those, those thorny issues of appropriation and evaluation. <clears throat> and then um, most recently, I've um, worked with Dr. Renee Bird to co-write a keywords handbook um, that will be coming out in a few months. And this is a kind of pocket guide that um, is is um, focused on discussing um, questions of race, gender, sexuality, culture, and representation in the classroom. Um, so the goal is to really foreground um, these conversations. And, and I recommend to teachers of creative writing that we bring students into these conversations even before workshop begins um, so that we have a shared lexicon to talk about points of, of ignorance, microaggressions, um, and, and the work of developing an understanding of these things um, and the space to um, call in, if you will, um, I'm hoping will be supported by having books like these um, two that I mentioned uh, that, that, you know, make um, these conversations accessible and also show that they're conversations that working writers are, are grappling with alongside their textual production. Would you be willing to leave us with one of the keywords that you're particularly interested in making sure that those of us that teach writing have in the classroom that you think would be helpful for us? Oh, sure. Um, so the, the second book um, with Renee Bird has terms like counter-narrative. Um, that would be one I, I would leave us with. The book is called Writing Intersectional Identities. So intersectionality is, of course, a term in that book as well. So is identity. Um, and really realizing that across the work that we do, in the classroom and the writing that we produce and our students produce, these are, are terms that are already relevant to, to um, the, the work that we're doing. They're always present. And it's just developing the language for talking about them. Um, and that's what those two books are meant to do. 
thank you for these books that are coming out. And Janelle Adsit, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much. I, I so enjoyed the conversation. My name is Eric LeMay. You've been listening to an interview with Janelle Adsit, author of Toward an Inclusive Creative Writing, on the New Books in Education channel of the New Books Network. <laughs>